Welcome back, guys, to another episode of On The Verge. In today's podcast, we will be discussing science and consciousness. And I know this is a huge topic. And honestly, we have covered a large array of questions relating to this topic. And in the next episode, we will be going more in depth into a lot of those questions. All right, so today we're going to talk about science and consciousness. Uh, we've got a new guest on the show, Alex Chow, um, who graduated from the University of Pennsylvania um, with a degree in computer science uh, and is also the co-founder of the Penn Society for Psychedelic Science. Cool. So if I can get started, I suppose we can talk about different things to do with science and consciousness, but I think... Firstly, we can define what science is, and perhaps secondly, we can define what consciousness is. And then lastly, maybe we can, we can talk about the relation between science and consciousness. So if I can start with the definition of science, I do think that science is about the study of the natural world. And in today's understanding of natural world, there is this idea, this bias, that the natural world has to be understood within a materialistic framework. But I do think that there's two types of science. One is about the study of the natural world through the third person perspective. That would be the study of matter and the study of natural world through the first person perspective. And that would be the study of consciousness from within. So, in that sense, science is not just about the study of the material world, it's also about the study of consciousness, the first person and the third person perspective. And I do think that our current uh, culture that, we are, that we're in prioritizes the science, in, uh, prioritizes and defines science only in materialistic terms. Okay. So I do think science is about the study both of the first person perspective and the third person, both matter and consciousness. Yeah. Um, now, defining consciousness, I define consciousness as awareness itself, and we have to distinguish the contents of consciousness with awareness or consciousness itself. And there is a very important distinction between the two. So to give you an example, awareness is just the mere fact of being aware, of being awake, whereas the content of awareness or the content of consciousness could be something like the taste of coffee or the experience of love. So that distinction needs to be made, or the experience of colors, for it, for example. And now I hand, I hand over to you yeah. guys yeah. to talk about your understanding of science and also consciousness. Then yeah. we can talk about the relation. Yeah. Uh, can I come in? Can go me? ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think you, um, yeah, what you presented was, was very good, and, and I'd like to adjust it in the following way, because I, yeah, I, I'd like to make the point that I, I don't think that's that's how, that's how people understand science basically I think you've given a very good um, introduction to that but here's how I would re-spin it again okay. so first of all from the very very start science comes from the Latin skiens skire means to know what science is is knowing right and so historically it was used to mean any kind of knowing right and so in German it's Wissenschaft knowing and it's and they, they use that word science for literature the Literaturwissenschaft is the science of literature so in the broadest possible term it's just human knowledge human knowing, human understanding, right? Mm. Now, the subset of that is natural science. So, you know, mm-hmm. in, in sort of the scholastic, you know, at the, at the beginning of the university system in the West, so through, was <clears throat> through scholastic Catholicism. And so they would call what we call science, 
natural science, study the natural world, right? Now, the, the, the dichotomy that you started talking about was about, okay, well, that science is a study of nature, it's a study of matter, and then we have this different thing, which is consciousness, right? And that, and there we fall into this conundrum, right? Mm. That, and there we get this thing that, okay, what, and that, I think that's what most people think, right? What science is, is about, it, it, it necessarily entails this materialist paradigm, right? right? It's, it has this Cartesian split, and what science can study is the physical world, right? And I basically think that's not, that's really not, that's the wrong way to look at it, right? Yes. What science is, is a set of methods. So just the same as what football is, <coughs> association football, right? It's a set of rules, 11 players, there's a ball, the, it has to be the goals, it has to be this pitch, and within these rules, you play, right? Mm -hmm. What science is, is a very loose collection of methods that work, that everyone agrees to play, right? Mm -hmm. So physicists agree to a certain set of rules about what this is, what that is, and then they use that to inquire. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, so that's what science is, right? And so that without you get zoology, which uses a certain, you know, very disparate set of method methods, which are very different uh, to the science of biology more general. It's very very different to the science of of um, of, uh, of chemistry, right? But with the, they all share certain um, certain similarities, right? In the sense that it has to be generally speaking, measurable, it has to be conversable, right? You have to be able to get different people mm -hmm. to agree on what it is that we're doing, what mm -hmm. it is that we're studying, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but within the different natural sciences, there's, there's a huge amount of methodological disparity, and within each science, there's a huge amount of methodological disparity as well, right? Mm -hmm. So that's where it's tricky. There is, it, that, that's the one thing. There's, it's, it's, you know, people talk about, well, science says X. Science doesn't present a holistic, clear... It's not a metaphysic. It's not like... There's no grand theory of everything really in, in science, right? It's a set of methodologies that people do uh, with skill and with effort and with earnestness right? and, and with, with uh, attention uh, to detail, right? And, and, and a genuine desire in many cases to come up with interesting results, results that are interesting for our understanding, that are interesting for, for, our, use, for our use. And it's basically that. Right? So in terms of what can we say about what these methods all share in common, mm -hmm. I'd say it's, uh, I think, and this is why I'd like to ask you guys, it's basically that. It's basically a certain amount of rigor. You have mm. to say what it is you mean, and then the other people have to understand what it is you mean, mm. and we have to agree on a common set of ways of approaching a question. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's what differentiates science from art or whatever, right? In which you don't, you know, have to agree between different artists about what a painting is at all, right? Mm. It's about that set of, okay, we're all going to agree on these explicit rules, I'm going to approach these rules with rigor. Mm. I'm going to do it together, collectively. Mm -hmm. Would you say that's basically, yeah. would cover it? Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I mean, Alex, do you, do you have any uh, input on this? That is, that, is a very, that is a very insightful introduction to science, um, beginning with the Latin roots of knowing and seeing how, seeing how it has evolved throughout the ages. Um, from Aristotle to Plato, we have <clears throat> these ideas of substance and form and this blending between what we now call philosophy and science. It was virtually the same thing. Mm. And with, you know, Rene Descartes, we have this rationalism that was introduced to the notion of science and the notion of knowing. And the modern definitions of science begin, according to some scholars, with Karl Popper 
and has developed into these collection of methods and these collections of rules and these collections of quote-unquote natural laws that we all abide by. Yeah. I was also going to say that even if we you know, take this idea that science is the study of the material world, what we count as, quote-unquote, the material world has evolved quite significantly mm. um, over the centuries. So, for example, Descartes had this notion of the fundamental essence of the material world as extension, so something that is extended in you know, length, width, and height. Mm. Um, but our understanding of you know, the essence of materiality has changed a lot since the days of Descartes, right? So, for example, quantum mechanics really shook up science by showing that, you know, what matter is fundamentally is not something that's extended, you know, like a cube and like a tiny little cube in space, but rather is something that is fundamentally um, a probability function. Um, and from that prob probability function, you can derive quantities that are more classical, like the squared amplitude of um, the, this probability function corresponds to the location of a particle. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to consciousness, right, like people have this notion that consciousness is something that is fundamentally immaterial in the sense that the, you know, felt sensation of an experience, the felt sensation of, of experiencing pain, the felt sensation of seeing red and so on and so forth. Those are not material things. Um, and so there's this question, right, of like whether or not these revisions to our understanding of what materiality is can accommodate something like consciousness. Uh, so can you understand consciousness in like a physical paradigm? Um, where, you know, physicality doesn't mean that something is like, you know, a tiny little cube in space, but isn't said something different. Um, my feeling is no, honestly, on that. Um, or like, I don't really see how you can, you know, begin to really still bridge that gap. Like if you say, for example, like what it means for something to be material is to be a probability function. Okay, well, like that still doesn't really tell us like what consciousness is from that perspective, you know, like how would consciousness be like a probability function? Um, yeah, I think that's and, uh, hard to say. And, 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 and that's basically, that's the point I was trying to make, right? If the yeah. question is, how do we reconcile consciousness with a physicalist paradigm? That's one thing. Right. And then very quickly you fall upon the hard problem of consciousness. But the, if the question is, can we study, how can we study consciousness scientifically? That's a different thing. Mm -hmm. right? Right, it's right, like, right. how do we use the methods of, of, you know, of rigorous empirical science mm -hmm. to study consciousness? Yeah. And then you don't particularly have to fall, because if, mm -hmm. if the question you're asking is that, it's, a, you know, it's an ontological debate and we're going to end up in aporia. We're going to yes. end up not knowing. We're going to say, oh, we don't know how we can do this. Right? Right, right. But if, we're, if we just kind of bracket that question and say, yes. how do we apply these methods? Right, right, how do we right. apply but, know, rigorous But, but I, I think the important question there is right. which methods are we using, right? Because right, as right, you were right. saying, each discipline has different methods, like zoology yeah, has different exactly. methods from yeah. physics, from, from, yeah. from chemistry. And even within physics, right, you have different sets of methods within exactly. quantum mechanics and classical mechanics. And then the question so, becomes, which methods are germane? There we go. Yeah, which yeah. methods can we apply to consciousness yeah. and get us interesting results? Yeah, right. I think there are some common elements uh, criteria that we can use. Uh, one is testability, whether that is verification or falsification, and the other is um, the other consensus. So, as in, we talk about and we discuss consciousness maybe through a materialistic lens of uh, of studying physics and understanding the world only through physical terms, or we study consciousness through the first person. We meditate and we do self-inquiry and we test mm -hmm. whether we get the same results. So testability is, I think, very important mm -hmm. for both the science of consciousness and the science of the physical world. So there's testability. Now, whether you take verification or falsification, that we can talk about that. And there's can, the idea... Can, can you describe the difference between okay. the two briefly? So with, with verification, we can do self-inquiry right now and, for example, verify that consciousness does not seem to be localized. 
or to do, if you're trying to um, test something in, in physics, then we can carry out some experiments and see if you um, if can get the results. Now, there are people who argue that science of the material world is can, you can only apply falsification to because you will never know if you have the truth eventually. You will never know if you have the truth. But I think with, with the science of consciousness, from the first-person perspective, I do think it is a much more direct science because you can test um, the truth or the validity of these claims through verification. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the, the fact that the my mystical schools of all um, different religions around the world for thousands of years have basically saying the same thing. Um, the details are different. Um, but the fact that consciousness is one, that we're all united, um, that there is this deep sense of peace in all of us, um, all, of, all of those core ideas is universal and it hasn't changed. But if you look at the, uh, the history of the material science, we've, as, you, as you described, we've been learning about matter through Descartes, through Aristotle first, and then Descartes, and then uh, quantum mechanics. So it's always changing. This seems like scientific knowledge through, through the perspective of the third person is changing. Whereas the science of the first, first person, even though the details change and we can learn new information, there are certain core ideas that remain the same. Uh, where, whether you go to Islamic mysticism or Christian mysticism, the idea that the self is an illusion, that there is universal self, that idea has remained the same and it hasn't changed. And that tells me something about the science of the first person, which is more trustworthy, more direct uh, than the science of the third person. Um, I think we're getting sidetracked to our, our usual stomping grounds, right? And uh, um, stomping grounds to which we'll return, right? I think the, the, the special thing we're trying to do in this, in this episode is empirical science I think what I, what I, the way I'd like to reorient the conversation is thus. <coughs> Can you, uh, uh, Kenneth and, and Alex, tell me what are some of the main ways that people today are trying to tackle the question through empirical scientific methods? What are, yeah. what are the angles they're taking? So what's in, coming up right, right. So, I mean, like, obviously, when it comes to studying consciousness, the, the, the discipline that immediately comes to mind is neuroscience, right? Um, with, with the basic background assumption, of course, that consciousness is something that arises principally from the brain. Um, <clears throat> in neuroscience, there are basically two leading theories of consciousness. So the first is the global workspace theory, and the second is integrated information theory. The global workspace theory basically suggests that um, consciousness you can kind of think of as a spotlight uh, on a theater of unconscious processes. So you've got these unconscious processes corresponding to um, emotion, um, uh, you know, visual perception, um, language, many, many other things. Um, and consciousness is, is basically something that takes an unconscious process and broadcasts it um, to the remainder of the brain. Um, so for example, um, once you become conscious of a visual percept, um, that information then, then gets broadcasted to other regions of the brain that are responsible for language, emotion, cognition, and many other processes. Mm. Um, uh, integrated information theory um, uh, basically suggests that um, consciousness corresponds to um, the maximal irreducibility um, of a repertoire of cause and effect structures in the brain. Okay, that's a huge mouthful. <laughs> what does that mean? Um, so... Um, if you take, let's just say, a single neuron in the brain, right, um, that neuron um, is caused by other neuronal processes, right, like the firing of other neurons in the brain, and then it, it consequently affects um, other neurons in the brain. Um, it releases chemicals, it fires an action potential, and so on and so forth. 
Um, so if you take um, a, a set of neurons, you can analyze its cause-effect structure. Um, basically, the probability that you will have certain effects given certain causes. Um, and then furthermore, you can analyze the redu irreducibility of that cause-effect structure. So like, um, how, do, how, how would one describe irreducibility? Okay, so let's say, for example, um, you take a book and you, um, you, 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 um, you, you rip one page out from the book. Um, now, the combination of the information in that page and the rest of the book is the same as the amount of information in the book to begin with, right? Does that make sense? Mm. Um, so in that case, we would say that the book is completely reducible, whereas if the information of the page plus rest of the book is somehow less than the amount of information in the total book to begin with, we would say that that book is more irreducible. So... Um, if you were to take the cause-effect structure of a set of neurons in the brain um, and partition it in some way, which you can think of as like ripping uh, a page out of the book, in other words, like mm. ripping one or two neurons out of that population of neurons, mm. and you see whether or not information is lost by ripping out those neurons, um, then you are basically quantifying the degree of irreducibility in that mm. set of neurons. So it's the irreducibility of the cause-effect structure of the brain. Um, in my opinion, integrated information theory is very arbitrary and that like basically it's trying to find a way to explain the unity of consciousness. Um, and it says the unity of consciousness is something that corresponds to the irreducibility of this information. Mm -hmm. But there's no real reasoning, in my opinion, for why we should think that the unity of consciousness has anything to do with that. And just to pick up your brain and what you were saying, um, maybe it's important to bring some clarity to what neuroscience actually is. Right. I don't think neuroscience can tell us anything about consciousness itself, but it can tell us about the consciousness of consciousness, mm. like sounds, uh, the experience of sound, the experience of colors. Um, so you can find neurocorrelates of consciousness in the brain that correlates with the experience of colors, experience of certain emotions. Um, but I don't think, if you're assuming that neuroscience itself tells something about consciousness, then you have already assumed materialism. And I think that information... <coughs> Information. Um, Let's leave aside the materialism thing. It's just so this, this, these two theories. Right. What are they? Are they are they themselves trying to answer the question of how consciousness is caused by the brain, or or, 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 or rather, are they trying to answer the question of, yeah, how how is consciousness related to the brain, mm -hmm. or are they structuring paradigms to begin to mm. get preliminary yes. information to study this? Mm. Yeah. Uh, what exactly do you mean by the latter, and how how is it different from the first? Well, as in, like, do do they them are, are, are the attempt are these are these theories which, okay, is are these theories which, if grown, mm -hmm. could grow into, an answer to that question mm -hmm. of how exactly consciousness is related to the brain, mm -hmm. or are these theories that simply say, okay, how do we begin to start to study mm. consciousness in the brain? Here's two ways to start. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think these these um, theories are both meant to answer the question of, okay. of how consciousness is caused by the brain. <clears throat> but at the same time, I mean, I don't know if this is true for certain, but I think that the um, creators of both of these theories recognize that, that we all we have right now is just a preliminary start at answering these questions, you know. <coughs> so, again, I can't speak on behalf of the creators of these theories, but I, I, I do think they, they realize that, that mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're not, you know, giving a full account okay. at the mm -hmm. moment. Yeah, yeah. So there are two questions. Um, if neuroscience is trying to answer the question, what is consciousness? Right. That's a big difference to the understanding how consciousness is related to the brain. Right, right, right. So we can talk about the neurocorrelates of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. That's, that's absolutely fine. But I think yeah. the big question is, 
can neuroscience tell us about consciousness itself? Right, right, right. And right. so David used, I think is, it was... Is it asking that question? Is neuroscience asking the question, what is consciousness? You could is say it? neuroscientists are right, right, trying yeah, yeah. to go from a sort of descriptive analysis yeah, of the brain yeah, yeah. Right, to right, going right. to a metaphysical understanding mm. that this is actually consciousness. Right. And the brain is causing... So they're trying to find causation from the brain to consciousness. Right, right, right. But actually... The, the problem is that you can't find causation and you have the hard problem there. Right. So maybe we should talk about the hard problem. Yeah. Um, well, so, so just to answer your question, so I mean, like, I think there are many neuroscientists who are trying to understand consciousness, who are trying to understand it in a, in a way that is divorced from all this metaphysical baggage. Um, but even, even those, uh, I think, who are trying to come up with hardcore theories, like, like real hardcore theories of consciousness, um, uh, from a purely neurobiological angle, will nonetheless admit that you do need to begin from some basic philosophical assumptions. Exactly. So, for example, with global workspace theory, right, um, um, the, the, which, you know, very much tries to just uh, attack this problem from the neuroscience and minimally from philosophy, even the, the, the you know, the chief... Um, authors and people who have advanced that theory, like Stanislaus de Haine, for example, will say that, yes, like, uh, global workspace theory does assume functionalism, right? Um, which yeah. is the idea that, that, that the essence of consciousness um, is its function. So, for example, um, like, like, you know, the consciousness of pain, for example, um, is defined by um, the function of pain to uh, prevent you from, you know, touching mm -hmm. a pain, uh, uh, an aversive stimulus, um, uh, some, something that, that gets you to, yeah, basically avoid things that would threaten your survival in any yes. way in the environment. Um, and, and Stanislaus de Haine, like, very much dismisses the idea of qualia, the idea that there is something about the, you know, subjective felt experience of consciousness um, that is above and beyond, um, you know, processes in the brain. Sure. Um, and I guess, yeah, I, I, I want to ask this question and then bring, bring Alex into the equation. I'm sure you've got lots of insights to start adding. Uh, and I guess my main question would now be, how's it going? Like, what advances are being made? And how would you describe those advances that are being made? Because clearly there is, there is good science happening. There are results happening, at least in small areas here or there. So first of all, how is the overall picture? How is the overall validity of these theories developing? And second of all, in the micro research programs within which within these theories what kind of stuff is coming out mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. is useful and interesting mm -hmm. and then please i'd like to hear from alex yeah. um uh, uh, kenneth as well. yeah um well yeah just to start i mean so um i think we have advanced a fair bit in our understanding of the <clears throat> neural correlates of consciousness so um like uh christoph koch um who um did research uh, on consciousness with Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of DNA, um, um, has like you know got a pretty solid grip on the areas in uh, the brain that light up on an fMRI when you become conscious versus when you're unconscious. Um, and similarly, like we have a, a pretty good understanding of, of what happens in the brain um, when you transition from an unconscious stimulus to a stimulus that is perceived consciously. Um, and you know we understand, for example, that after 100 milliseconds, right. Um, uh, this unconsciously perceived um, visual stimulus um, will then become consciously perceived, and as a result, it's going to quote unquote ignite, um, you know, basically this firestorm of activity globally around the brain. So rather than just getting like you know a localized cluster of activity in the visual cortex, um, you get this much more global, broadly distributed um, uh, activity um, across many regions of the brain. Now the issue with all that research, though, is that it is that it fundamentally treats the the. It fundamentally treats consciousness as something like an on-off switch, 
right? So we have an unconscious stimulus and then it becomes conscious and then what's changing in the brain? This tells us absolutely nothing though about um, the extraordinary vast complexity of consciousness because as we know, consciousness is not just an on-off switch, right? It's not just something that you turn on and then the lights turn on and suddenly you're conscious. Mm -hmm. There's so much more going on and it's not just the content of consciousness, it's also the structure of consciousness too. Um, and I think that is something that like neuroscience is trying to address and in my opinion, in principle, can be understood uh, from a neuroscience framework. Um, so what are some examples of the structure of consciousness? Well, like one very clear fact about the structure of consciousness that we can confirm from a first person perspective is that consciousness is unified. Um, that at any given moment in time, you will have a unified experience of the world. Um, and, um, and, you know, I think neuroscientists are trying to tackle this problem in a number of different ways, right? Um, some will say that just the synchronization of different neuronal signals um, is sufficient for consciousness. Um, others will, you know, take the approach in integrated information theory where you, you take this complex notion of irreducibility, right, and try to equate it to, um, to the unity of consciousness. And even other people, um, like David Pierce, will say, well, actually, the unity of consciousness is not even something you can understand from a material perspective at all. Um, the actual unity of consciousness is something that can only be addressed through some non-classical framework. So in the same way, for example, that, like, um, two, um, two discrete... Um, uh, particles in quantum mechanics can become a unitary system through entanglement, right? He's suggesting that, you know, there has to be something like entanglement to bind all these different distinct units of experience together into a unitary consciousness. Um, and that, again, brings in all these philosophical ideas. Um, all of which is to say, like, the unity of consciousness is one feature of the structure of consciousness that is totally un unanswered. Um, there are altered states of consciousness that we don't even begin to understand right now. Um, psychedelic science is beginning to shed a light on these issues, um, but is still... Um, uh, I think only partially getting the way there to an understanding of what consciousness is neurologically beyond just an on-off switch. Sure, should we pass to, to Alex now? For me, during this conversation, there were a few questions that caught my attention, and they were closely related, yet quite subtle, each arising and engendering many, many lines of inquiry. Uh, for example, how is consciousness related or arising out of the brain? How is consciousness caused by the brain? Mm. What is consciousness? <laughs> what are the neural correlates of consciousness? Mm. Uh. To what extent is the brain <coughs> causing consciousness? And finally, whether or not it is possible to study the notion of consciousness when divorced from metaphysics. All of these questions are very related, um, yet also quite different. Um, notions such as causality, hmm. or the word caused, hmm. um, comes with quite a bit of baggage. Um, whether or not we use the word caused, related, arising, hmm. or hmm. is, hmm. Hmm. brings us to hmm. different fields as well as different lines of inquiry. So um, I, would, I would like us to, I would invite us to take pause and consider these questions. And what we mean when we use the words is, caused, <laughs> related, and arising. Because as we use these words, we are also channeling different philosophical and metaphysical frameworks 
whether or not we are channeling materialism, physicalism, reductionism, whether or not we are subscribing to closed individualism, empty individualism, open individualism, whether or not we believe consciousness is perhaps external to the brain in the sense of the isness of the universe, mm. a field of infinite awareness, and that the brain perhaps or the vessel is simply a tuning fork mm. or a mm. vessel mm. that mm. receives this energetic signal. Mm. So these are all open questions that we can consider. Yeah, and, mm. and how is science considering? It? <laughs> That's right. Precisely. So I, I think I think you make some great points, Alex, and and thank you for distilling the the conversation. Um, so I think that this notion of causing and arising um, can be treated as more or less the same. So I think we have um, basically three different relations. So the brain is consciousness. Mm. The brain causes um, consciousness, or rather consciousness causes the brain. Um, you can go either way, depending on your framework. Um, and finally, consciousness is related to the brain. Now, <clears throat> the third one is quite general, right? And so you could, for example, um, imagine two separate processes, um, as is sometimes considered in philosophy of mind. So like a chain of mental processes and a chain of um, physical processes. Um, so you can only ever say that the chain of mental processes parallels um, the chain of physical processes, um, but there's no actual notion of causality um, between these two processes. So what, let's give a concrete example. So like, for example, let's say you're experiencing pain um, and you're noticing that the intensity of the pain is growing and it's shifting from one location in your body to another. Um, so that's a chain of mental events, and then there's a chain of physical events, which is, you know, like the firing of uh, certain uh, neurons in your nervous system, right, um, in different regions of your body. Um, and so in, in that framework, you wouldn't be saying that um, the physical events are causing the mental events necessarily, just so you have these two things that are happening side by side and they parallel each other um, in, in a neat way. So that's one way of viewing uh, relation. Um, and then there are the other, well, yeah, uh, one way of viewing the idea that con consciousness is related to the brain. There are these other ideas, um, as I was mentioning earlier, consciousness is the brain and consciousness um, is caused by the brain, um, which are distinct ideas. So I think that we can answer all of, all of those questions or get to the bottom of it by, um, by discussing this, this idea is that which is fundamental, matter or mind? Now, you don't have to pick one or the other. But as Donald Hoffman says, you have to pick your miracle. What is your miracle first? Mm -hmm. On the top of which you're building theories, you have to start with something. So if you're starting with the fundamentally of fundamentality of consciousness as being the, uh, the ontology of the world, and then you can boot up the brain and the whole physical world, or are you starting with matter as being fundamental? And I think the, my sort of picking which option comes from our experience. So I'm, 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 I'm an empiricist. I think that what is experiential and what we have evidence of experientially is the thing that we should trust the most. Mm -hmm. And so when we first pay attention to our own experience, is it that my body is aware of my consciousness or is it that I as awareness am aware of my body? So I pick the fundamentality of consciousness based on my empirical understanding and consciousness comes first. I am awareness in which I am experiencing the physical world and my, my body is one element of the physicality. So the reason I'm picking my miracle as consciousness is that I am actually experiencing consciousness 
and I am awareness, I am consciousness, in which there is physicality. So I'm picking that because I'm experiencing it. I know that it exists. Whereas the idea of matter, the way it's traditionally defined, is that it's something inert and dead outside of mind. Mm-hmm. This is really important to, to have this definition of matter and not to play with the definition. Because if you play with the definition, then we get it confused. Consciousness becomes matter, matter becomes consciousness. Uh, the definition of matter is that which is outside of mind. And we don't really know what that thing is because we've never experienced it. And no one will ever experience it. So to start with matter as a fundamentality of the world from which you, you boot up consciousness is inherently flawed because we don't even know what that thing is. We never experience it. And nor will anyone ever experience it. But when we start with consciousness, that is the that is the ontology that we have access to. That is that is our experience. So I do think that philosophically speaking, we have to start from consciousness and then see matter as arising in consciousness. So in that sense we have to postulate whether how it is yeah. that consciousness is creating the brain. Right. So I think I think the science of consciousness is essentially trying to bracket all of this. And I think you can actually bracket all of this and still actually come to some pretty meaningful conclusions about, okay, yeah. about what consciousness is. Um, so in other words, like, okay, sure, let's say consciousness is fundamental, right? And the brain arises somehow from consciousness, right? Even if this is true, and you know, the brain, the material world, etc. are all something of an illusion, right? It is nonetheless true that there are real consistent relations, structural relations, um, between different processes that unfold in matter, or rather the illusion thereof, mm. um, that we can understand from a scientific empirical perspective, right? Um, like, even if the brain is nothing more than an illusion generated by consciousness, right? Like, different scientists can still agree on the fact that some parts of the brain are more involved in consciousness than others. Like, for example, we all we the neuroscience of consciousness at this point has come to the conclusion that the cerebellum doesn't seem to have anything to do with consciousness, right? Um, yeah. And that's a meaningful conclusion that you can still arrive at. Can I quickly pick your brain? Is yeah. that, um, I think you started by saying that neuroscience can tell us about consciousness, right. bracketing those questions, but I think there is an assumption in what, what you just said, that your proposition is, proposition is that there's something about neuroscience which tells us about consciousness. Right. I think that's deeply flawed. What neuroscience tells us about the contents of consciousness mm-hmm. or the neurocarlis of contents of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not consciousness itself. And that's what the hard problem is, is that mm-hmm. we don't know where in the brain, if at all, consciousness arises. Mm-hmm. That's the big question. Mm-hmm. So neuroscience, uh, from a mystic's perspective or from an Eastern perspective, tells us nothing about consciousness mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. It only tells us about the contents of consciousness. That's what neuroscience yeah, is. Sure, but look, but look. <clears throat> ornithology tells us nothing about ducks themselves. But an ornithologist, mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. ask them, what Good is point. a yeah, duck? Yeah, yeah. Is a duck an emanation of the Godhead or is a duck an ornithologist will not be able to tell you Mm -hmm. what is a duck fundamentally they don't need to what an ornithologist studies is Mm. okay how many ducks are there in western Australia whatever in 2021 right 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 right. how are these ducks related to these ducks 100 years ago you know Uh, that's what no empirical scientist ever (laughs) tells you anything fundamentally about something yeah. Is right. That is the question. Sure, for the they sneak that in in their theories. That's that's a problem. Like, I mean, they, they they don't. The scientists don't. People talking about science yeah. externally don't. Yeah. No scientific paper has ever been published on the essence <laughs> of a duck. Okay, I, I can give <laughs> you, you know? an example. Yeah, yeah, is yeah. that if, if 
there are scientists like Christopher Koch who, yeah. who thinks that the brain is causing conscious experience. The individual Christopher Koch, the yes. person Christopher Koch, yes. has opinions on, on football, on politics, yeah. Yeah. All, all kinds of things. He's a human being mm -hmm. who has theories about mm -hmm. how the world works, right? But the scientist Christopher Koch is not doing yeah. that. He's never published a paper yeah. about what is consciousness, right? Maybe he has. Maybe well, he has, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, when he does that, he's, he's you know, he's clarifying that he is, yeah. you know, yeah. making epistemological claims. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's, now, functioning, claims. he's yeah. now functioning as an epistemologist. Right, right, right. right, yes. right. So, so, like, again, I think we can kind of bracket this. We don't have to figure out whether or not, we don't have to start with what is a fundamental mind or matter. Right. What we're looking at is, okay, we're, we inhabit this, we're in this world, mm. okay, there are brains, mm. all right, Let's 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 make some studies. Let's right. find. So let's make. Let's generate some knowledge. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. yes. Let's agree together on some terms and come up with some results. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the first thing we have to agree is what neuroscience is. So mm -hmm. I, get, I can give you an analogy. Mm -hmm. Think of the screen and the images on the screen as an analogy. I think neuroscience is about a study of the images. Mm -hmm. One image is the brain. Yeah, we can learn about the image of the brain within the screen, or we can learn about the screen itself. Mm -hmm. Now I don't think neuroscience can tell us anything about the screen. It tells mm -hmm. us about the images. That's, that's what, what I'm saying, uh, is that see, neuroscientists, however neutral their theories are, they do conclude at the end that, yeah, the brain is causing. Now, they may agree with you that they're not coming at this conclusion from their theories, but they are still postulating that. They're still postulating matter being fundamental. They're still postulating material causation. That explains consciousness. But I think that fundamentally speaking, if we... Un if we have a def clear definition of what neuroscience actually is studying, what is it even studying? Is studying the images within the screen, studying the brain, the appearances in consciousness, yeah. not consciousness itself. Yeah, we all look, we well, have, well, yeah. I, I actually, I think that that metaphor is, is a bit inadequate because it, it seems to suggest, right, that like you know, consciousness is a screen, and there are images yeah. unfolding on top of the screen. But sure. there, again, there are structural properties of the screen that yeah. neuroscience, I think, actually can give us information about. What is one of those um, structural processes? Well, to continue the metaphor, right, sure. a screen has a frame rate. Right, so like there, yeah. there, 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 there is a rate at which the images, um, you know, right. appear on the screen, right. and this right. is actually the kind of thing that neuroscientists try to interrogate, um, mm -hmm. namely like the the quote unquote frame rate at which objects of consciousness arise and disappear. Right. The, the, um, the, 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 was it like the window of the perceptual present? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. Can um, I can I just quickly yeah. clarify? <laughs> okay. This is this is really interesting. Uh, the the analogy of the screen. Is not to be taken literally. It's a metaphor, right? Right. 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 The screen is but, literally. But I, I do think it's helpful. I, I yeah, think yeah. It's absolutely helpful, but I don't think it has frame rates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The screen of infinite awareness has no structure, no frames. Mm. Just pure empty being. Mm. And you're trying to give it structure. Mm. As soon as you talk about structure or form, anything that's that's a thing, mm. a form, yeah. will become the images still. Yeah. Let, let's like return back to our own experience of consciousness. We don't experience structure. We do not experience things, we experience awareness itself. Mm -hmm. Can neuroscience tell us about awareness? No, it only tells us about the contents of awareness. Mm -hmm. um, and if, if you want to disagree, I'm more than happy to, to push this, uh, yeah. to argue about this, but I think it's really important because, yeah, yeah, yeah. because the, the jump from the images to the screen is a huge metaphysical jump. Yeah. That, at that point, you face a hard problem. Right, right, that right. is the exact hard problem arises when you try to start from the image of the yeah. brain to get to the screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's what the hard problem is. So, yeah, I, I, so again, I, so I think this actually does turn into a question about the metaphysics of science. Um, so, all right, so 
if you take the view that consciousness is something like you know an empty canvas, an empty canvas, um, uh, an infinite kind of void or nothingness, etc., right? And all the physical world can tell us fundamentally, uh, or, or all that science can tell us about the physical world fundamentally, is the set of relations um, between objects that appear within that infinite canvas. Mm. Then yes, like science cannot yeah. tell us anything about the nature of consciousness. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. If on the other hand, though, you think that the nature of consciousness is something that is actually relational. Um, and that, you know, much like the physical world is tied up in the network of causes and effects, you know, codependent origination yes. in Buddhism, etc. Then actually it becomes a lot more interesting. Um, and, and then this sort of like duality between consciousness and the physical world kind of okay. begins to fade away. So, so then you will have to assume duality already. Then you're assuming uh, matter and mind to be both fundamental at the same time. Whereas if, if you take the idea of monism, of monism of everything is one mind right that there's no relation between two separate things two different things well but i i think i, I think you're misunderstanding my point my point actually yeah. is that if you take this idea mm. that consciousness is you know a set of relations of cause effect relations just like everything else is then that actually points towards a monism yeah. what you're saying right is that there is consciousness which is this infinite canvas uh, of awareness, right? And then there's science, which is telling us about the relations between objects that appear yes. in, in that in that canvas. Mm. And that seems to suggest that there are these two different things, science about the relations and consciousness about the infinite void. Um, whereas what I'm saying is that consciousness is just like everything else. The, the physical world is a set of cause and effect relations mm. And, mm. and consciousness itself is also a set of cause and effect relations. Mm. It's all just a set of cause and effect relations. Okay, so... Are you observing any cause and effect with regards to consciousness itself? Okay, so in the same way you observe causation in the material world. Material world. Do you want to? Go ahead, go ahead, David. Yeah. So I'm gonna. Yeah, this might seem like a bit of a departure, but I'm, I'm gonna try to be as helpful as I can to this particular loggerhead. So we can come sure. back to this if you want. But this is how I would. Okay, this is how I try to explain it. Okay, look. Let's take an easier example. Mm. So now the difficulty we're coming at is okay. Consciousness, science, science, consciousness. Let's just take something that everyone agrees can be studied scientifically. Just the material world, quote-unquote. Mm. Physics. Mm. Okay. All right. So, I had a beautiful, I've mentioned it before on the podcast, very, very beautiful chat with my friend Teo in my living room a few years ago, where I just told him, okay, look, sit me down and give me, give me a run-through, right? Give me another introductory less lecture on physics. You've, you know, and I wouldn't mind having one live. I've never had one live before. So he took my whiteboard and he gave me an introdu introductory lecture on physics. And he basically went, okay, look, I think the wrong way to approach physics is the chronological approach. Usually that works, but uh, that's not, you know, starting with Ptolemy, Newton, no. It's, the best way to do it is methodological. What are we doing with physics now? There's three basic approaches to physics, right? General relativity, you know, large scale, quantum mechanics, and then statistical physics, particularly thermodynamics, right? Those are the three angles you have on physics. And then he went into each one, and, you know, I got to rehearse my knowledge about each one. And then at the end of this whole thing... He concluded with this, and he's like, now, the tricky thing is, is that it's not just that these three approaches are describing the world in different ways. It's that they're describing different worlds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, the yes. world as described yeah. by general relativity is famously, famously incongruous mm -hmm. with the mm -hmm. world as described by quantum mechanics. They're mm -hmm. describing completely different things, right? Yeah. And then third, and the one that that, but that was we're, we're all we're all aware of how confusing that one is. Yes. Right? But the one that really does my noggin is statistical physics. That one completely throws everything else out the window, mm -hmm. and we we haven't even started <laughs> on that. So that's the, so okay. That's the problem, right? If if what you think physics is doing is giving us a clear, coherent picture of the world, is answering the question, okay, what is the what is the material world and how does it function? 
that's not what physics is doing. And the point is, that's not a problem, right? Mm-hmm. No one, I mean, perhaps for some people, occasionally, if you, you know, occasionally you can <laughs> get a little floored by that. But the, that's fine. Physics is proceeding fine, right? We're, you know, working on it. There's problems with this and that. But, like, it's proceeding at a nice steady clip. And no one is questioning the enterprise of what physics is doing, even though <coughs> it is not cleanly answering the question of what is the material world. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it, yes. you can't, it's not even answering um, that because it's, it's, it's what the best it's doing is coming yeah. up with three totally contrasting ways of looking at it. And, and okay. Same yeah. with consciousness, right? Yeah. We don't need to answer this question cleanly. Okay, what is mind? Is it mind or is it matter? Is it matter? Is it mind? Is it blah, 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 blah. Physics is proceeding just fine without answering these questions, right? Why not neuroscience? I, I don't think you need to. I don't think you need to get a certain neuroscientist, right, to answer this particular question. We know what we're talking about more or less when we talk about the material. We know what we're talking about more or less when we're talking about consciousness. Mm. Just get on with what it is you're doing. Mm. But mm-hmm. the point is that please communicate to us what ex- what exactly is it that you're doing? What are you arriving at? So, you, mm-hmm. so the things like you say, what we're discovering is cerebellum not too related. Mm-hmm. We can take out someone's cerebellum and they will continue to have qualia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. a yeah. result. You, you, can, you can make lesions in yeah. a person's cerebellum and yeah. they will they will continue to be conscious. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. So again, if you want to continue, continue, right? But the point is, I, that that's my pitch about why we don't have to answer that question. Yes, I mean... If we can't okay. answer it for physics, okay. how the flip <laughs> I mean, how we can answer it for consciousness? Right? Physics itself is metaphysically neutral, at least, right? But physicists, this is my problem, is that I'm, I'm talking about a cultural, yeah, yeah, culture yeah. around physics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you take the average physicist, they are concluding certain metaphysical positions based on their work. Um, same with neuroscience. I'm talking about a culture. Because essentially encapsulated in the culture, obviously physics is metaphysically neutral, so is most other things. Well, but the culture of physicists is one of materialism. Well, this, is, this is the problem. Like, you do physics, you basically you assume different metaphysics for different physicists. Physicists will, be, you know, I'm, 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 yeah. I'm mangling it, right? Yeah. But basically, you get one physicist who'll be like, okay, I'm going to start looking at the world through this metaphysics. Basically, and then you come up with a bunch of good results. And, yeah. and the next physicist is okay. I'm going to look at, at the world with totally different metaphysics, but they're all physicists. But the majority, my point is, the majority, the dominant culture is one of materialism. That's no, no, my but, point. Yeah, but fine. But, but that, that begs the completely the question: What the fuck? What the fuck is matter? You can look at matter like energy. You can look at matter like okay. this. You can look at matter like that. You can, can look I, at like a trillion I, things. I, I, I'm going to give some clarity. They have different okay. metaphysics. Okay. Completely, completely, okay. not just different. Completely like contradictory metaphysics between them. I can, I can give some clarity to this. So you can have you can have a philosophical definition of matter, and yeah. this is very clear. Matter is that which is outside of mind. Yeah. And then you can inquire into what matter is in detail. So mm-hmm. is matter extension, is matter quantum mechanics. Yeah, matter can change shape or form, but the philosophical definition of matter has never changed and should never change. If that changes, then we don't know what we're talking about. Matter is that which is outside of mind. And if you're changing the definition of matter... That's not what physicists talk about when they talk about matter. No, 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 but I'm talking... I'm talking about the ontology of what, what matter is. Yeah. Alex, you, yeah. Who has given that definition and since when? Okay. I think that's just it. That, that, <laughs> that, that was, it was no, but, one guy. Okay, that definition is accepted in the modern debate. So if you are debating what is matter and what is mind, you don't have to define what matter is. In detail, what is extension, quantum mechanics? The whole idea is that matter is that, that which is outside of mind. We don't know what that is. But that is the philosophical definition of matter. And unless you have that clear definition, any debate about consciousness and matter will be completely meaningless. 
because you're changing the definition. That's what Bernardo Castro had a, very, a lot of difficulty with uh, debating with this uh, panpsychist. What's his name? Um, uh, um, Philip Goff. Yeah, Philip Goff. Is that, he was changing the definition of matter. You cannot do that. That's the accepted definition. And that is what matters. It's inert, unconscious, dead, whatever you accept, outside of mind. And, and if, if it's within mind, then it's mind. It's not matter. Mm. That's the whole idea of matter. Now, an idealist understanding of matter is that matter is just an element in mind. Sure, 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 so sure. essentially, matter is reducible to mind. It's just very. We have to give clarity to our to okay, our definition. Fine, fine. How about can we just all be idealists? Say matter. <laughs> would that make us all happy? Matter is a subset Let of mind. Podcast adjourned. <laughs> no, 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 no. But just to, just to get yeah. somewhere so that we can then talk about wh wh whatever it is yeah. that we're studying. Okay, what is it we're studying? We're studying matter. Okay, what is matter? It's a subset of mind. Okay, great. So okay. how are we studying it? So what what are we getting from this? Yeah. Well, so, yeah. well, I would I would be curious to actually discuss that definition mm. um, without the framework of debate. Should Without I, introducing mm -hmm. this notion of debating, because we're not trying to prove each other wrong, we yeah, are trying to elucidate the understanding yeah. of of very very fundamental things um, and perhaps fundamental not things. Um, so, so you mentioned that the <coughs> definition of matter mm. that you subscribe to is that which is outside of the mind. Not that I subscribe to; it's defined by materialists. Okay. Yeah. That, that is an interesting point in itself. Okay, and, I, so, and I have to work with their definition, right? Okay, so the definition of matter as defined by materialist is that which is outside of the mind. Yes. So with this definition comes a few interesting implications. Um, number one, you are, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm sure. understanding you correctly, you are assuming the primacy of mind. Um, and so okay. that there is yeah. mind and then... You define the mind, I imagine, in some way, and then you say everything that is outside of the mind is prima facie matter. Okay. Uh, before I'm even assuming that, I'm only working with the definition of materialist. So I, I can give you something that just completely clarifies this. If there was no mind, no human mind or no being that existed, matter will still exist as this dead, unconscious thing. <coughs> right? So let's say there's no you, there's no me, there's no conscious being. Right? Matter is that which is there. Whatever that is, but it's not mind. It's not capable of thought, of emotion, of conscious experience. That is the whole idea of matter. And I think that is really important to, to have that definition of matter if you're trying to um, address it. Because the definition of matter from an idealist pers perspective is that, yeah, matter is an element in mind, just like your, your thoughts is an element in consciousness, your emotions. They're two different things. You have your thoughts, you have your emotions, you have the material world. These are all elements within consciousness. In your own experience, you experience your thoughts and your emotions, right? But you also experience matter. But it's all experiential. You're experiencing matter, you're experiencing mind, you're experiencing thoughts, you're experiencing emotions, right? So it's essentially all consciousness in, in our own experience, right? Now, what materialists do is that to carve out matter from mind to say, look, matter is that which is outside of mind. So if there's no one who exists, matter still exists as this unconscious dead thing from which then mind arises. That's the whole problem, right? Is that, yeah, the brain is causing the, our conscious experiences. And that definition is, is, is a key, is that that is, that is how they're defining matter. Okay, so, uh, so, so um, in what you just said right now, there were, there were at least two definitions sure. of mind and matter and two, at least two different frameworks. If I understand you correctly, you're saying that in idealism, mm. matter is a subset 
or a manifestation of the mind. Sure. Yeah. An element in the mind, yeah. An element Where, in the mind, yeah. Whereas in materialism, matter is that which is outside of the mind. 100%, exactly. exactly. So if we look at a Venn diagram or two mm. circles, yeah. in an idealism framework, the circle representing the totality of matter lies within the circle yes. representing mm-hmm. the totality yes. of the mind. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a materialism framework, the circle that represents mm. matter is actually non-intersecting, is mm. outside of the circle that represents the totality of mind. Yes. It intersects in the pineal, <coughs> intersects in the pineal gland. <laughs> you got it, bro. Famously, famously intersects in that one spot, which is how the mind can then control the body, you mm-hmm. see. No, I mean, that, that's important. Yeah. You, yeah, yeah, you, exactly. you've, you've got the point. And, and actually, this is how um, the debate is, this is what the debate is in philosophical discussions, um, is that, if you are changing the definitions, then we have a lot of problems. Like, we fall into so many problems. And, and then there's no way even to talk. So we have to agree on those definitions in order for us to even talk about the matter. Yeah, I, I think the most interesting part of any conversation um, about matter, mind, and consciousness is actually about defining them. 100%. In the sense that agreeing upon definitions, mm. prima facie, brings a lot of baggage of epistemological and uh, and metaphysical frameworks that if we do not clarify beforehand mm. can yes. obfuscate the conversation 100% mm-hmm. So, so with those definitions, do you guys have any conflicts of interest? <laughs> I'll just say that so there's a nice Chomsky line, which says, look, there are certain mysteries, right? That science is never going to understand. And, and, and people are like, the guy who's interviewing him is you're Chomsky, arch-rationalist. What do you mean by mysteries? Is well, look, something is a mystery if we can't even begin to agree on the def- def- definition of the question. If we can't come to an agreement about what it is we're asking, well, then it's going to remain a mystery. It's not a question of, oh, well, maybe in a future date we're going to get more information. Well, no, if we More information to what question, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. If you cannot ask the question, if we cannot get to a spot mm. where we're agreeing on what the terms mean in the question, right. mm-hmm. there's nowhere to start beginning. Exactly. Maybe right. in some future date, mm-hmm. someone will ask a different question, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And which we will then agree on. And then that question will be answered. But the questions that we've so far right, been, so that's, what he, that's how he's describing the hard problem of consciousness, right? That whatever that question is, that question is going to remain a mystery because we're not agreeing on the fundamental question. We're not agreeing on the fundamental Mm. terms being discussed right? right which reminds me of the famous line from hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy you know the answer to everything is 42 <laughs> yeah but exactly. what is the question exactly <laughs> exactly mm-hmm. and but so what's what, the question and so what i'm saying and that's what i try to bring in throughout this conversation though but even at the very beginning was that empirical science starts mm. once you agree on a particular question and a particular method so yes. yeah in this mm. sense, perhaps can we, can we agree on this? Whatever this question is that we've been muddling around about idealism, materialism, that that's not amenable to science. Mm-hmm. But mm. some things are. Mm-hmm. People are studying the brain. People are studying the mind. There are psychologists. Yes. And these people are scientists. Right? They have agreed upon a method and they are coming yes. up with results that people can hear and listen to and understand and find interesting and find useful. So what is that? What is so that first the mystery we can leave aside and we can continue to talk about that amongst us mystics till famously the end of time, right? <laughs> but then, like this is the one episode where we're not talking about the mystery. Mm-hmm. This is the one episode where we're talking about the 
specific pragmatics amenable to rational mm. inquiry mm. and empirical and, and, and testing mm. and, and agreed upon frameworks, right? Mm -hmm. So then let's put everything that's a mystery to one side if we can and then say, okay, so what, let's, let's start the other way around. So what is it that we're studying that we are getting good results on? Mm -hmm. And yeah, so like, what are the research programs, right? That are doing well. That science is indeed advancing along. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. So, so as, as you know, we had sort of discussed earlier, right? We, you have these two different theories um, in in the science of consciousness. There, there are more theories, by the way. These are just like the two leading ones, in my opinion, in the field: um, global workspace theory and integrated information theory. Um, and you can sort of think about these as you know similar to like the three. Um, branches of physics that you were talking about earlier, David. So general relativity, quantum mechanics, um, and and um, statistical mechanics. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So similarly, right? Like the global workspace theory and integrated information theory start with different background assumptions, and they have indeed different methods, right? So so they are not agreeing on a certain method with which to understand the nature of consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. Integrated information theory is okay. Theory is saying, okay, like you know, take basically this unit inf of information as like cause effect structure in the brain, mm -hmm. whereas global workspace series trying to understand you know like the quote-unquote global ignition of activity right the projection of information across the brain right and these are indeed two different methods for answering mm -hmm. the same question mm -hmm. now whether or not there is crosstalk between these two theories is a very interesting question i actually don't know mm -hmm. what the neuroscientists would say about that maybe there is a fair bit of convergence in the methods and you can find some way of relating the two um but let's say that you know there isn't actually a way of you know, um, sort of relating one method to the other, then do we have a fundamental issue um, in uh, trying to understand the neuroscience of consciousness? Now, maybe, and I think actually this does indeed return to this philosophical question of like, well, is this a problem, right? Mm -hmm. So with physics, right, you could say, okay, you've got statistical mechanics, uh, general relativity, quantum mechanics. Okay, let's say there's no way of relating these three things together. Um, maybe that's not a problem because you're just describing three fundamentally different worlds. Um, and that's okay. Maybe, maybe, uh -huh. maybe, maybe you admit a sort of, I don't know, pluralism, right? right Where right, you're like, right, okay, right, like yeah, yeah, all yeah. these things are true. They all coexist. These are just different worlds in the world of reasoning. Mm -hmm. Um, or you can say, okay, actually, no, this is a problem. We can't have different worlds in the world of reasoning. There is one world in the world of reasoning mm -hmm. and therefore we must find consistency. We must find it, but we must yeah, yeah, throw yeah. away these theories, come up with an overarching theory that better encapsulates yeah, 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 these yeah, 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 different yeah. theories. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so like in, 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 in math, for example, there's this idea of like, uh, an, an isomorphism, uh, a way of like basically relating two different structures. Mm. Um, and you're not quite trying to show an equivalence with that. You're basically just trying to show like a sort of mapping, um, from which you can get from, you know, one, one structure to another. Mm. Um, and so, you know, uh, maybe there is, e even if, like, you know, at the neurological level, there is no way of, you know, finding some kind of a convergence between uh, integrated information theory and global workspace theory. Maybe you can still, you know, find out this system of mappings where you can say, like, okay, like, you know, um, I don't know, di different different features of the theories relate to each other. But that's a very, it's a very hand-wavy idea. <laughs> and another cool theory is uh, proposed by Donald Hoffman, who wrote a book, uh, Why um, Reality Doesn't Exist, or something like that, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think um, yeah, sounds familiar. Yes, I, I'm not exactly remember the title of the book, um, but the, the the idea of it is that there is the idea of it comes from evolutionary biology that essentially we did not evolve to see truth, we were evolved to have processes that helps us survive, and so 
survival beats truth. And I think it's interesting to talk about the evolutionary biology um, from his work because essentially it tells us that we were not even evolved to see to see truth. And that's an important one. And But I think it still tells us about what, what it tells us is about the contents of consciousness. Um, so I think evolution, if you look at what evolution does, is that it gives us a sort of like a desktop interface. Mm. So you have a desktop interface that is given to you through your own unique evolutionary process, which is similar to mine because we're both human beings, but a bat's or a cat's mm. uh, desktop uh, or virtual headset mm. is different to yours. So you know, you can think about the, materialist, the, the material causation in evolution to give you your unique desktop that you're having, but it still doesn't answer the question, what is awareness, what is consciousness? It only talks about which virtual reality headset you have. Do you have the Samsung one, or do you have, uh, I don't know, Oculus? Oculus, Oculus, Oculus yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, like a bat is using Oculus, I'm using <coughs> Samsung, and some, yeah, we all have the, our different virtual reality headsets through which we view consciousness. Mm-hmm. But I think the important question is to, to bracket that question and to really see it as a separate question than the question, what is consciousness? And I think if you take mysticism as the science of the first person, the science of consciousness from the first person, directly experiencing yourself, mm-hmm. I think you can understand that pure philosophy, spiritual philosophy or spiritual science, is that you are actually studying your consciousness directly through by the virtue of being consciousness yeah. right so you can take ketamine you can take dmt you can take different drugs to um to you induce ketamine a, and dmt you could, you could <laughs> or you could take it together and you have a direct first person experience of consci- of a state of consciousness or you can do self-inquiry and still directly experience something about consciousness or you can go to physicists and say look look at look at me right now what do you see well you, I, you see a brain you see a skin uh, you see my eyes. You see the. You see me from the outside, mm-hmm. and you can describe me in those terms. Um, Bernardo Castro had this interesting uh, example that if I'm crying, and I'm, and you can see tears coming down my cheeks, but you can look at me and and see the tears, see the behavior of behavior of my emotion from the outside, or you can ask what those what are those tears. Um, relating to what are they pointing to they're pointing to an inner experience of sadness so the reality of the tears is a sadness is an emotion is is consciousness right mm-hmm. so it's to understand matter as as a behavior of consciousness um, and and you can see that in your own experience you're interacting with me you see me as as a body i'm moving but my reality is my inner conscious experiences right so the first person view is from my point of view is is primary and that's so important is to talk about the science of the first person and the science of the third person and to bring it together in a unified way such that they don't contradict and how the, how can that be well you can talk about the uh, f- the physical processes of the brain evolutionary biology how it's given us a virtual reality headset right that's a third person you're studying the headset you're studying what your virtual reality headset is like its code and its unique properties, and you're comparing your virtual reality headset to mine and to other people and to other animals, and you're learning about the headset, yeah. and then the mysticism as the science of the first person, then you're learning about not the headset, but the reality itself. Yeah. And mm. that is very important distinction that I, I'm making well, in reference so, to Donald Hoffman. So I, I think that is 
um, yeah. though perhaps a flawed way of seeing it. Okay. Because, because <laughs> right, so, so mysticism, you're saying, is an understanding of reality itself. But the thing is that the mystics are nonetheless always perceiving reality from the headset. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, to, to say that the mystics are somehow stepping out of the headset mm. implies that they are somehow stepping out of the apparatus through which they're seeing the world, mm. um, which seems impossible, actually. Okay. Um, maybe you're tweaking the parameters of the headset quite a lot. Right. Yes, yeah. Um, and and that I certainly grant mystics are doing. Yeah, I can I can grant you a point that maybe it's impossible to get out of, out of the headset. Yeah. Uh, maybe all that is possible is that to change the setting of the headset. Yeah, exactly. From pure being, pure consciousness to a DMT experience to you know to the waking state to the dream and uh, to the dream yeah. state. Um, but I do think that the first person view is more direct, nevertheless, yeah. than the third person. Sure. And therefore, That's whatever... It's just, it's just not the subject of today's podcast. No, I do think it is. But it now is. <laughs> now is. Okay, okay, okay. We, we are talking generally about consciousness and science, okay, yeah, yeah. definition of science, definition yeah. of consciousness, yeah. how, how they relate okay, okay. to each other. Uh, let me say one thing. So, yeah. uh, first thing, you said that how do we get these all to cohere? How do we get third-person science and first-person science to cohere? Okay. And in a certain sense, like you, you don't. Like the same. It's like how do you get Chinese and <laughs> and and Russian to cohere? Yeah, sure. Oh yeah, in in English. Well, that's yeah. it. You you invent you have a third language and then you translate the Russian and the Chinese into the third language. Like well, no. Now you're just speaking English. You don't get Chinese and Russian to cohere. Chinese mm. is Chinese. Russian is Russian. Yeah. Mm. If you want, you the subject can learn them both. Mm. But then you now know Russian and Chinese, mm. and then mm. when you're speaking Russian, you're speaking Russian. You speak Chinese, you speak Chinese. And then, mm. yeah, you as an individual, we all as individuals, all of us as a species, the universe as a whole, yeah, will like do all these individual things, right? Mm. No, like the human race isn't going to itself cohere any of its different languages into mm. one thing. Any individual isn't going to cohere all of the languages it knows into one thing, right? Yes. So, you, you know, we're all, we'll all learn a bit about each one, but mm. we're never going to collapse any of these things into each other. Okay, I, right? okay. That's, that's, that's such an interesting point. And I do think there is a way to come to a reasonable, I, I'm not saying true, absolutely true, but a reasonable theory of everything. Mm. And I do think it, it comes back again. <laughs> Let's do it in it, this podcast. It, God help us, it, 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 I think it comes back to our own experience. Yeah, like, yeah. again, how am I experiencing the world? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm experiencing myself as a circle. Mm. Yeah. Within that circle, there's time and there's space. Now, whatever they are, I don't know. But 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 but, 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 but I do. But I, I am experiencing time through my thinking, and I'm experiencing space through my perception. Right. So, how they cohere? You to answer your question is that well, just come back to your own experience, non conceptually. How are you experiencing the world? You're experiencing awareness within which space time occurs. So that's how they cohere in our experience is testable. That's what self-inquiry is, is to realize space-time is arising in you, right? That's how they cohere. Okay. And, and I, think, and I well, think, I'm not saying that's true, I'm saying that's the only thing we can work with because that is the only empirical data we have. What, what, what else do we have access to, right? Sure, but I, I, I don't think this is pointing us anywhere, actually, towards like uh, a way of unifying um, the first-person, third-person perspective, right? Because uh, you could say like, you know, through immediate introspection, you recognize that space and time cohere in your mm -hmm. awareness. 
well, okay, so does my awareness of the table and of this microphone and of this laptop. And this is telling me nothing about, like, you know, how any of that relates to um, the neurobiology governing your perception of table, microphone, laptop, etc. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, you, like there, there is no way of going from the neurobiology of spatial perception to the immediate, interest, in, immediate introspection into the basic fact of space as an element of your awareness. Okay. Um, now there is uh, there are different methods though right that you could use like for example uh, how do you alter your perception of space within awareness you take a psychedelic for example yes, yeah. um and there are actually like if you really do some like really deep introspection you'll recognize like all these like really fascinating ways in which like space um can change under the influence of dmt for example yeah um like i mean this is just a metaphor, but like, you know, my, my metaphor to explain like how the perception of space changes when you do DMT um, is sort of like how your perception of a Necker cube changes um, when you flip between different modes. Mm -hmm. So like a Necker cube is two squares. It's basically a way of representing um, a, a, a 3D cube on a 2D piece of paper. You, get, you draw these two squares and you connect the, um, the vertices. Um, and if you look at an echo cube, sometimes one face seems to be facing outwards, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. another uh, face seems to be um, inwards. But then uh, you flip your perception, um, and then that other face is now facing outwards. The other face is now facing inwards. This is easier. Um, yeah, this, is, this, this is easier to 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 um, to <laughs> exemplify visually than than on a podcast. But anyway, point being um, that like on DMT, it's sort of like your entire field of, mm. of, of perceived mm. space mm. switches inside yeah, out yeah, in yeah, the yeah, same yeah. way. Yeah, that yeah, like yeah. a Necker cube switches inside out um, when you flip between different modes of perception. Yeah. Anyway, so that I think is a more meaningful way of trying to draw correspondence between um, uh, between the first person and the third person because then you're actually saying meaningful things about changes in your perception that you can actually then correlate with third person changes. Okay. Um, so I do think you need to say something informative ultimately rather than just like, okay, like space and time exist within awareness and so does everything else, you know, yeah. good problem solved. I, I mean, I, th I think you've defined coherence in the way that you just defined it. Um, right, 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 of but course, if, of course. But if, 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 we, if the question is, how does the third person and the first person fit together, right? I think that it fits together simply, not in a complex way. And so the, the Hindus have, have this idea that, you know, you go through different states, waking state, the dream state, the deep sleep, deep sleep state, and then as you said, the DMT state. And in each of those states, the experience of space-time is different. The DMT state, you're experiencing time differently, and uh, space also. But of course you can see how the third person, the first person is coherent, because in the, in, the, in, the, in the terms of coherence, how they're unifying, how they're coming together, in that simple act of well, how they're related to each other, I do think that tells you a lot, but it tells you simply. And maybe that simple, uh, maybe that simple truth is, is bothering you because it's so simple, <coughs> is that, look, you are consciousness in yes. which your space, there are different modulations of right. space and time. Within DMT experience, you have a modulation of space and time that is altered, right. but right now in the waking state, we have a modulation of space and time right. that is the way it is. Right. So how, how is the third person, first person and third person coming together well, in that simple way, that we have matter, <laughs> whether it was from the perspective of you being high on DMT, or from the perspective of you being the waking state, appearing in your field of awareness. That is how they're cohering and how, they, how they're unifying. Now, if you want to find complexity in that, mm -hmm. then you're assuming universe to be complex. I don't think that's true. I mm -hmm. think I want to bring everything back to the simple 
um, fact how we experience the world. I'm experiencing the world of the unity of the third person and first person in the way I described. Right. And any conceptual like attempt to to complexify this is fair enough. But, but why are you doing that? Why why do you need like a big answer to this question? Well, well so because because of the question, right? Okay. So 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 the question is what matters here, and the question is um, how do you cohere the first person and the third person accounts of consciousness if you're ultimately reducing the third per- third the first person account to Consciousness is um, a sort of canvas um, in which um, the entire world, including space and time, appears. Then there is no real way of relating that to, in a principled way at least, to the conclusions that we derive from the third-person perspective on consciousness. Um, I mean, I give you an example. You see tears coming down my cheeks. I'm crying. Right, right. You imply uh, you are you essentially are not saying that the tears are the things in themselves. Yeah. They're a sign, they're a picture, they're a symbol right. for my inner sadness. So that's how they're relating. Sure, but but like, how how do you relate that to the, the, again the, the third person uh, empirical neurobiological account of what consciousness is? Oh, I don't, th- I don't, I don't, th- I didn't think that was the question. Okay, I think, I think the question was how they're relating and how they're cohering, unifying with each other. Not that specific question you just asked, because I think that sure. specific question we have to discuss the hard problem. Well, uh, go ahead, David. Yeah. <laughs> do you have anything to add, Alex? <laughs> Did you have anything you wanted to talk about, Alex? <laughs> well, I was I was going to suggest with uh, your prompt earlier yeah, yeah. about returning to the methods, yeah. mm. the the empirical methods, and your question, Ali, about what is neuroscience, um, and perhaps perhaps with the help of Kenneth, um, I was going to invite us to actually take a little tour through the history of neuroscience. That sounds cool. And, um, and what the me- modern methodologies are. That sounds cool. Please tell us. Okay, so... My, my knowledge of this is not very complete, so please feel free to chime in and, um, and, uh, and, and fill in the blanks. So it does seem that um, some of the early indications of the study of neuroscience um, occurred in the Egyptian times with uh, mummific- mummification, the, the removal of the brain, the preservation of the brain. There, was, there seemed to be an indication that the brain was important to our existence. Um, and, there was, and before the neuron was discovered, you know, there, were many different, there were many different ideas about how the brain worked, you know, um, from using dissections to, uh, to just observe, observing the brain and, and trying to guess which part of the brain corresponded to which type of functions. And it was very much so this understanding that in the brain there seems to be these networks, but it was unclear what formed these networks. And it wasn't until 1873, with the development of the Golgi stain by mm-hmm. Camilo Golgi, mm-hmm. um, a silver staining technique that actually isolated a singular neuron or mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. showed us what a singular neuron looked like. Mm-hmm. And that began the neuron doctrine. And later on, with more sophisticated electrical measuring techniques, mm-hmm. um, and, and in the prior, uh, with Phineas Gage, uh, the famous <laughs> case study, that we began to better understand how different parts of the brain reflected or corresponded to different functions. Phineas Gage being the guy who got his yeah, sort of rod pushed through his eye, through his brain, yes. and his personality changed. Right, irre- right. Irrevocably, yeah. Right, exactly. And um, so one thing to note is that 
um, a lot of modern neuroscience focuses on the neuron, mm. um, and 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 that neuron is the the fundamental unit mm. of communication within the brain. But that is actually more of an artifact of the staining techniques mm. that were available <laughs> for time. So the Golgi stain, the the silver, I believe, silver chromate stain. Could only stain the neuron, mm. but it couldn't stain the glial cells. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. with the astrocytes, the oligodendrocytes, the mm. apodemal cells, the microglia, mm. which are these supporting functional cells that also exist within the brain, which seems to have a, a diverse range of functions. Mm. And so, in our discussion, if we want to provide some richness, mm. we 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 might want to examine more than just the neuron and also mm. the functions of glial cells and these supporting cells. In their functions in perhaps consciousness, mm. um, but without teetering to consciousness again, mm. um, I would I would also like to invite Kenneth um, to to also talk about uh, Kenneth and I to talk about um, some of the modern techniques for actually studying the brain. So, as I understand, the there are a few major imaging techniques. Um, there's magnetic resonance imaging, mm. MRI, and within those there are structural MRIs, structural MRIs, and functional MRIs. There's also diffusion tensor imaging, mm. DTI. There's also P- PET positron emission tomography, mm. PET. Mm. There's also EEG, uh, electroencephalogram. Mm. There's also MEG, magnetoencephalogram, mm. and that, those are all just the, the imaging techniques of imaging either blood oxygen level dependent metabolism, imaging um, the diffusion of water, imaging mm. electrical activity, mm. and then within imaging or measuring electroactivity, you also have narrow field in which you have pipettes that you measure singular neuron activities, mm. um, which are often invasive, meaning you have to cut open the brain. Mm. Um, there are also non-invasive techniques in which you measure a broad field of neurons, the mm. electrical activities of many, many, many <coughs> neurons in concert. And with this comes an interesting trade-off between resolution spatially and the precision of the measurement itself. Mm. When you measure singular neurons, you have very precise measurements of a singular neuron, but you sacrifice spatial resolution or spatial coverage. Mm. When you measure a field of neurons, you sacrifice the individual resolution of the neuron. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But this is this is not even exhaustive. This, these are only the imaging techniques and the electrical mm-hmm. techniques. There are also a broad range of um, behavioral techniques, uh, which is often used in drug development and other models of uh, quote-unquote pathological models for depression or anxiety and those um, those are often conducted in rat or mice studies mm. um, for example the elevated uh, the elevated plus maze the forced swim test um, and there's also different paradigms of uh, depriving mice and rats from their mothers to simulate depression there are also different methods of um, restricting their food intake or their water intake or you or models that <coughs> allow them to drink and eat uh, ab uh, ad libidum ad, mm. ad libidum mm-hmm. and so an understanding of consciousness um cannot be detached from these very grounded methods that, yeah, exactly. that scientists are using exactly. to investigating and and we must not forget the history 
of neuroscience itself, physics, mm. metaphysics, philosophy, all of these are interconnected in mm. our inquiry of consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think this, these, these are all excellent points, um, Alex, especially the first one that you made. Um, so I, I, it, I can't really speak on behalf of all the imaging techniques, um, but um, MEG, for example, right, is basically detecting the magnetic fields generated by the brain. This is, this is, this is um, the, the modality that I work with. Uh, and MEG um, is basically measuring the magnetic field generated by what are known as excitatory um, postsynaptic potentials. Um, so these are um, essentially electrical currents um, um, that, that occur um, on the postsynaptic terminal of neurons. Um, so you can think of synapses as the bridges between neurons. Um, and so when a neuron is receiving uh, a signal um, from uh, another neuron, um, it's basically um, receiving the uh, postsynaptic uh, potential. Um, and, and so in that case, right, we're looking at the, the potentials generated by, by neurons. And so Alex is right that, that we're ignoring um, glia, all oligodendrocytes, all these other cells in the brain that may be contributing somehow to cognitive function, and, and we don't know, right? Um, uh, it, it, the, the prevailing hypothesis in, in neuroscience is indeed um, that neurons are the cells in the brain that are principally responsible for things like cognition um, and consciousness, and, and um, other cells like glia, et cetera, play more of a supportive role um, but aren't you know the the main players um, in cognition and consciousness and the other things we care about, um, and yeah, um, a lot of the so when it comes to you know uh, human neuroscience, um, we can't really um, we can't really look at the brain at the level of a single neuron. The reason being that we would need some kind of invasive technique for that, and those invasive techniques are only really ethical um, in patients that are undergoing uh, surgery, usually for epilepsy. So if you're not undergoing surgery for epilepsy, um, then it's not possible to cut open your brain in order to look at individual neurons. So that means that the technology that we have left, which is mainly MRI, MEG, EEG, and PET, um, those are pretty coarse-grained. You know, like for example, MEG requires the synchronized activity of literally tens of thousands of neurons in order to register uh, a signal. Um, and so, you know, when, when, when we are, you know, analyzing changes in states of consciousness, we're oftentimes looking at, um, you know, events that <clears throat> cognitive events or or, or um, uh, perceptual events that require, you know, this like really large scale synchronized activity, which means that there may be a lot more subtle neuro neuronal activity that we're completely missing out on. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so the, the basic picture that emerges here is that, uh, yeah, so so you know, there's a technological advance. Uh, humans discover how to measure something in a certain way. In this particular case, like you said, with the, with the, the silver. Uh, <clears throat> I think we, we can you discover that you can see a neuron. The standing, right? yes. You can, the standing, you can see a neuron, and then from that position, we have got something to start with. And then you can start asking interesting questions, right? Okay, well, given these neurons, how do they function? How can we map them? What kinds of um, uh, uh, maladies or, or, or anyway, any kind of sort of human uh, behavior can we sort of correlate to these particular things and their function? And then as the time passes on, we, the technology advances, we're able to study neurons in a new way, you know, the, the, sort of the, the electromagnetic signals or this or that. And then, so and that's basically the process that, as it happens. We find new ways to pick something out of the brain. And then once we have a nice reliable way to pick something out about the brain, many people start to ask, well then, given this particular angle on it, what can we start to see here? And then, it's, and then it just, and then as the more and more and more and more and more ways we have to measure brain activity, 
the more and more and more specific questions we're going to be able to ask about, well, how does measuring this particular brain activity tell us something about, <coughs> about cognitive activity? And that's, that, that will be the process of neuroscience pretty much going mm -hmm. forward, right? New methods will be, will, will be kind of mm -hmm. come across to measure, like you said, different parts of the brain that aren't neuronal, that we mm -hmm. don't quite have such, such a good handle on mm -hmm. now. And uh, questions which before had been obscure to us, we will be able to get some traction on. And this will accrete and accrete and accrete and accrete and accrete. Mm -hmm. and, then, you know, th and then at that point, you might start to get some kind of rolling mass of generalized theories which are able to sort of cohere right. all of these in slightly better ways. Right, 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 right. That's the picture that we're dealing with, right? Right, exactly. Uh, that, that is indeed the picture we're dealing with. Um, but uh, I want to actually return to something that, that Alex mentioned um, earlier in the podcast, which is that the consciousness, uh, uh, or the brain rather, might be uh, some kind of a, a tuning fork yeah, yeah, um, yeah, for yeah. a field of consciousness that exists outside of the brain, which is an idea that, that resonates with me a lot, yeah. um, purely on the level of intuition, um, not really much of, a, of an argument to support it. Um, now, yes, you can develop more and more sophisticated um, technologies to image the brain, etc. Mm -hmm. But if consciousness is indeed something that exists outside of the brain, mm -hmm. and it's a field, mm -hmm. um, and the brain is nothing more than a sort of a receptor, an antenna, mm -hmm. picking yeah, up yeah, signals yeah, yeah, yeah. from this field, um, then, you know, there's sort of this entire you're vast... Unti it, you're missing... Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, you're, miss you're missing maybe not even half of it. Um, maybe speaking of it in, in proportion, this doesn't right. even, even right. make sense course, necessarily. Course, yeah, 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 course, yeah. Course. Um, and that's exciting. That's mysterious. Is <laughs> all I'll say now is that it's mysterious. <laughs> <coughs> but we're getting finer and finer and finer and finer and finer detailed knowledge about the tuning fork. Yes, yes, mm. yes. This is true. So the tuning fork, in, in my terminology, would be the virtual reality headsets, right? Right, right, right. Exactly. And, and, and so I was actually going to comment on this um, earlier, which is that like we were talking about tweaking the parameters of the, of the, of the, um, of the headset, mm. right? And so the Qualia Research Institute, where um, Alex and I have interned in the past, um, has this idea that essentially, you know, the brain is um, some kind of uh, a tuning fork that that vibrates at certain resonant frequencies, mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, when the mind is in a clear and totally pure mm -hmm. state, the tuning fork is able to resonate yes. at those frequencies. Mm -hmm. But then, when you add in a bunch of shit, um, <laughs> namely psychological conditioning, um, trauma. <laughs> Trauma, huh. um, uh, uh, some scars, I believe they're referred to. Sankaras, yeah. Sankaras, yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah, your, your psychological scarring, basically. Yeah. Um, the, the tuning fork is no longer able to resonance. vibrate at yeah. those, you know, at its pure harmonics, at those yes. resonant frequencies. Yes. Um, and so you can think of the work of the mystic. Uh, under this framework yes, is something yeah. that is basically uh, clearing yeah. away the shit yeah, 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 such yeah, that yeah, yeah, the yeah. tuning fork is able to um, resonate yeah. at those um, at those frequencies. Yeah. yeah, that works. That works. Yeah, that works perfectly. And uh, so you could say one harmonic is that of love and unity, which which you can get if there's no noise. Yeah. And then if there is noise, thinking, trauma, sankaras, uh, the more you become identified with them and and attached to them yeah. the more you have suffering the more you have separation yeah. the more you have uh, dis disharmony yeah. and and would you say like bad harmonic uh, effect yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> negative on both bad on vibrations you, yeah bad, <laughs> bad vibes both on yourself and on the world right? yeah, yeah. yeah disharmonious yes yeah. disharmonious <laughs> then perhaps we could perhaps we could um, give a brief summary or overview of, nice. of some of the topics we touched upon nice perhaps not 
perhaps not expansively or completely, but there seems to be, uh, it seems that we rested for quite a while on this idea of materialism and idealism. And from such, the definitions of matter and mind. We talked briefly about the history of science from the philosopher scientists, from the Latin roots of the word science of knowing, mm. of Plato, Aristotle, <coughs> to Rene Descartes, to Popperian science, which we didn't mention explicitly, but th this idea of inductive empiricism and this mm, using right. statistics to essentially have a confidence uh, measure of our results. Uh, we also talked about some of the methodologies in neuroscience, um, both the history, brief histories of neuroscience, as well as the imaging techniques, as well as the behavioral tests. Um, and we also recognize that asking questions in itself is a very difficult practice. Um, yeah. The words we use, um, what is consciousness, what causes consciousness, what is related to consciousness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The way we ask these questions come with it, epistemological and metaphysical assumptions and baggage that may obfuscate uh, clear, lucid discussions of, of the nature of consciousness or the nature of the contents of consciousness. We also leave today with many more questions than answers and the invitation to ask better questions together. Thank you all for engaging with today's podcast. I have been Ali Reza Omidvar, and today we covered many important questions around science and consciousness. In the next episode, we will be discussing those questions more in detail. So make sure to come back and listen. <laughs>